All right, if you've got your Bibles with you today, let me invite you to turn one more time to John chapter 11 in the uh, Blue Bibles. It's on page 898. Next week, we'll transition to a more Christmas-themed sermon series that'll take us through December, but I wanted to take uh, one more sermon in John this morning, and and what we're going to do is we're going to begin reading at the end of John 11. I'm going to take us into, uh, well, not quite halfway, but I'm going to take us into chapter 12, and actually the main part of the sermon today is really focused on chapter 12 and on one verse in particular of it. Uh, As a reminder, if you haven't been with us, in uh, the Gospel of John, we've crossed a line. Uh, And what I mean by that is at the end of the raising of Lazarus, we turned our attention, or John, uh, through the Spirit, turned our attention to, in essence, a trial that was held in which Jesus was convicted of causing a disturbance amongst the people. And the decision was made that instead of risking the nation as a whole, they should in fact just kill the one man, get rid of the problem itself. And and so what we're going to see as we continue through John is the intensification of this opposition. Not that it hasn't been intense. It's been pretty intense as we've gone through uh, the Gospel of John, but we'll see it even more as we continue. And of course, what happens at the same time then is when you see, if you will, uh, the darkness increasing against that backdrop, it's all the more dramatic when you see instances of light. You see these words, these extraordinary words of Jesus that will be in the uh, chapters that follow this one. And in addition to that, you see incredible acts done, acts of of goodness and acts of glory that in the midst of the darkness shine all the more brightly. And that's what we've got really today, more so than words. We've got an act of love and an act of extraordinary devotion that is before us. So let me pick up the reading. Uh, John 11, I'll begin at verse 54 and continue verse, uh, through verse 11 of chapter 12. This is the very word of God. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. A fragrant offering. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, each word in these scriptures that you have entrusted to your church, that you've gifted to us, that we might know you. We thank you for the pictures that it shows to us, for the events that it describes for us. We pray, as we always do, that our hearts would be moved by what we see here and read here, that our minds would be enlightened, and that we would seek with all of our being to honor and to love you and to grow in you as a result of encountering Jesus and your word today. And we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, our focus in particular today is going to be on the anointing of Christ. The anointing of the one who is called the Christ, meaning the anointed one. Of course, that's in verse 3, and we see the picture of it, where Mary takes nearly a pound, it's probably about 11 ounces with uh, measurements. Think of a, a little, not quite a full Coke bottle, soda bottle. She takes this ointment and pours it on Jesus onto his feet and then wipes the excess off with her hair. That is our focus this morning. And what we learn is that this event, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, this event is going to be talked about. Talking about not only the one who was anointed, but about her who in fact did the anointing itself. And and so the, the story is so beautiful in and of itself that I don't want to spend any more time introducing it. I just want us to go into it now and consider what we've got before us. And in order to do that, we're going to look at first the context of the anointing, and then the anointing itself, then the anointed one, and then what in the world does that mean for us? How can we respond to this anointing of Jesus? So let's begin with the context of this anointing that takes place here in Bethany, which on the one hand is a sweeping context, but on the other hand is an extremely intimate and personal context. So let's start off on the, on the broadest scale looking at the context of this. Can, can we acknowledge something as we begin this sermon today, and, and that is that this is a strange concept for us. Uh, it, it's not something that we do in our everyday lives. There are things that we do, like having a meal together, having a meal for someone. That makes sense to us. At least we can visualize that. We can imagine that. Anointing someone with a heavily perfumed oil, that's just not something we typically do. And so we have to allow ourselves to go back in time a little bit as we enter into this story 
uh, and appreciate what's taking place here. So, so for the context in its broadest sense then, let's, let's think back to the Old Testament and to the way that the Old Testament presents this idea of anointing, this idea of pouring out of oils on someone. If, I'm not going to look, we're not going to go to a bunch of passages today. At some point, if you'd like to talk about that or no particular references, you can ask me and I can point you uh, to various references. But in the Old Testament, we have various examples of anointing that takes place. In fact, we have described for us, whether you want to call it a, a, a recipe or the ingredients or the formula for the oil that was designed to be used for anointing oil, the, the heavy perfumes that were to be used, particularly in association with temple worship. It's all very carefully prescribed by God. This is what you need to do. These are the ingredients that you need to have, and this then is what you do with it. And with this anointing uh, oil that God had prescribed, we were instructed by God's word to anoint uh, various items within the tabernacle, the temple itself, objects that were used in association with worship, and they were thereby set apart unto their use, unto God, made holy by this anointing of the oil. And in addition to the objects, we talked about this in Sunday school last week, in addition to the objects themselves, you had various people who were at times anointed in the Old Testament uh, as well. In particular, we think of the priests in association with the tabernacle, with the temple worship. They were anointed, and think of Psalm 133, the, the oil flowing down off of Aaron's beard and onto his collar and down uh, throughout him. Part of this anointing process, setting apart this particular person for service to the Lord, particularly priests, sometimes prophets, and oft-times kings as well were anointed in the Old Covenant. And along with that, this aromatic anointing that would take place, these fragrances that would be part then of the worship of God, you had sacrifices that were to be brought and offered unto the Lord, and those sacrifices are often described when they are offered as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, I suppose that meat, as it is sacrificed, as an animal is sacrificed with the blood and uh, all of the, the, the stuff that goes along with that, that in and of itself doesn't smell very good. But when that's then burned on the altar, all of us, I think, can begin to appreciate this, right? We, we can appreciate the idea that these aromatic oils uh, around the place uh, for, for things being anointed, these... Uh, perhaps grain offerings that would come, bread offerings that would come, uh, or searing meat uh, over a fire. Those are, if, if you want to put it this way, literally for us, pleasing aromas uh, that would be part of this worship. But of course, as it relates to God, the idea isn't so much that God has a, a particularly sensitive uh, sniffer and just likes that and doesn't like that, but instead, it's symbolic. It's, it's the symbol of God being appeased in his relationship with his people, that sin has been atoned for, and there's no longer this repelling stench 
to the worshiper. Instead, we become, through this sacrifice that has been offered, we become, it becomes, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. There's a kind of satisfaction. God's wrath turned away and his kindness is expressed. So, so, so there's, there's a big Old Testament context for fragrances, for anointing oils, for sacrifices, and bring that into this house of anointing that is filled after it's poured out with the fragrance of perfume. I imagine this place being filled with the fragrance that has been poured out. So it's culturally uh, perhaps more familiar for them than for us, but the Jewish people understood anointing and remember that the Jewish people were expecting, were looking for the anointed one. Okay, so they, they understood anointing and they're looking for the anointed one to come. That's the Old Testament context. But in addition to that, we need to see the particular context that's going on here. And in order to see this context, I would say, just note the timing of what takes place here. We have to see the timing because John's very careful about telling us how and why each thing is taking place. First of all, it's Passover, the highest and holiest of uh, the Jewish holidays, and so the reality of sacrifice and of deliverance and of death, substitutionary death, that permeates the whole atmosphere that's going on in and around Jerusalem for the Jewish people. Jesus, in approaching Jerusalem, coming back once again to Bethany, we noted this last week, and it'll come up in the next chapter, Jesus knows that his time, his hour, has come. It's Passover. He recognizes this is it. This, this is the hour for which I have come. The timing is significant. And so Mary, when she takes this ointment and anoints the Lord, is acting in accord with the timing of God. Whether she fully appreciates that or not, we, we don't know. But what we can see and what Jesus confirms is that indeed what she's doing is according to the timing of God. An aroma, a fragrance is about to fill the world. There's, there's going to be a new scent in the world after this. And what Mary is doing is foreshadowing that. She's anticipating that coming reality. She is preparing him for burial. And that's the idea that's in verse 7. At, at this point, let me, uh, let me note something for you. Uh, you may be thinking in your mind about other anointings that we read in the gospel in the first place. Uh, perhaps the one that is in Luke 7 comes to mind. I think that is a different anointing than the one that we're talking about here. So let me leave that aside for a moment. That's the, the anointing by a sinful woman at that point. Uh, we don't have indication about that with this Mary in particular who's here. But you do have anointings recorded also at about this time in Matthew and Mark as well. And Jesus in both of those, and we can be about, right, 
95% sure that this is the same anointing. We really can't be 100% sure that this is the same one, but I'm about 95% sure that it's the same one. And we have Jesus saying specifically there, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. That's the preparation. The timing is right. The timing for this at the Passover prior would not have been right. But this time it is. This is the right time. This is his hour that is coming. And when Jesus responds to Judas or to the disciples, as they're more broadly called in Matthew and Mark, when he responds to the outrage at the amount that is spent, the amount that is literally poured out, his response is a timing-based response. He says, listen, some situations, some opportunities will always be with you. In this case, because they were complaining about the cost of this perfume, In this case, what he says is, listen, you will always have the poor with you. You will always have an opportunity to do good, to give, to serve, to care for the poor. This isn't dismissive of the poor. It's just a statement of reality. You will always have opportunities for that, but you won't always have me. You won't always have me here Jesus in the flesh on earth just a few days before my death. That is a unique thing. The timing of that is unique. And one final uh, immediate note for uh, the context here, of course, is the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus just took place. Mary is full. Her heart is bursting with adoration, with thanksgiving. And so it's within that context that when Jesus comes to Bethany, they have a meal for Jesus. A meal for Jesus. This is the intent of this meal. Uh, It's a meal to honor. It's a meal to say thank you and praise you, Lord Jesus, for all of your goodness. So the time is ripe and right. It's Passover. The hour has come. This meal is in honor of the one who has done so much for this family. Old Testament, and then bring it all the way down to this particular family. That's the context. Now let's look at this anointing. Let me reread for us verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment, made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Culturally, we've noted, this is much different than what we do. It's it's not what we are used to. It It was more familiar for them than it is for us, But at the same time, when you look at the event and you look at the way that is presented, you look at the reactions of the people who were around, and you can tell that we're not in the field of normalcy right now, that that this is a step outside of what would normally take place even in an exceptional situation 
of anointing. So what's so different about it? What makes it so extraordinary? Well, of course, the first thing that jumps off the page is the cost. Okay? The cost estimated at 300 denaries. Now, put it in perspective. A denarii, one denarii is a day's wage. All right, 300 denaries minus Sabbaths, minus feast and holy days, 300 denaries is a year's wage. This is a wealthy family, but that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money for anybody to be spending on 11 ounces of ointment, to have possession of 11 ounces of this ointment. The cost of this is extraordinary. Secondly, the thing that we notice that's striking to us and presented to us in this way is the feet. The placing of the ointment of the perfume on the feet of Jesus given to us twice communicates so clearly the humility that is involved in the act itself. Remember, if we flip one page in your Bible, Jesus is going to gird himself with a towel and wash the disciples' feet. Okay? His act of humility is anticipated here by her act of humility in doing this. Now, uh, we should note that Matthew and Mark both record this ointment being poured upon the head of Jesus. The idea seems to be here that with the amount of the ointment, just as we would see with uh, the Aaronic priesthood and, and the oils flowing down, that this would have just been poured out over Jesus. But John wants us to note the feet in particular because of the humility that is shown, that is extended to Jesus by Mary. And then the other thing that stands out for us is, of course, the absence of a towel and the presence of her hair presence of her hair in the story. Uh, the understanding is that for a Jewish woman to let down her hair could be a sign of some loose morals, uh, it, kind of not the thing that you do around other people in a setting like this. So when she, in the moment, lets down her hair, it's unusual. And, and it's the idea here of it, this is not about what other people think. I don't care what other people think right now. It's about Mary, and it is about her extraordinary devotion to the Lord. There's nothing distant here. There's nothing formal about this. Her love for Jesus is deeply personal. Now, let me, let me shift for a moment to a scene that this reminds me of, although it's almost the, the, humanly speaking, polar opposite of this, but it's one that I've referenced a number of times and is one of my favorite. This makes me think, and I don't know if this is just thinking as a man uh, and looking at this passage, but it makes me think of Jacob wrestling with God. Okay, that Jacob wrestling with God is an intimate, personal, sweaty affair that takes place this wrestling with God, and so is this wiping of the feet of Jesus with the hair, deep and close and intimate and personal. And so, so this week, thinking about this passage, I spoke with a woman I love about this event and about the hair 
in particular, and, and Lauren said that, that she saw it as simply a physical way of saying, Mary saying, you are my Lord, and you are my life, and all I have and all I am is yours. There's nothing I keep back from that. I don't keep back my braided hair from it. I don't keep back my best perfume. I keep back nothing from you, my Lord. I give all of myself to you. My money is nothing. Cost is no object. My pride is nothing. I will wash your feet. My reputation is nothing. Let them say what they will. Let them, let them yell and scream about the cost of it. Let them yell and scream about who is this, what is she doing, how in the world could she be taking down her hair. Let them say what they will. You, Jesus, are all to me. Matthew Henry, the great old devotional commentary of Mary, calls it a generous love, a condescending love, a believing love. And it's an act that is recounted and resounds throughout the ages. And Jesus makes the declaration about it that resounds throughout the ages as well. She has done a beautiful thing to me. That's in the Matthew and the Mark versions of this. Whatever quizzical looks came at the moment, whatever protestations were offered by Judas, by others, whatever disdain was expressed, whatever shock, whatever horror, other people saying, oh my goodness, this is just so over the top. This is ridiculous. There's honor and then there's, there's just taking it too far. Whatever was said, whatever was thought, it is squashed when Jesus says, stop that. Stop whatever you are thinking right now. She has done a beautiful thing for me, period. May the Lord give to us that kind of love, that, that kind of desire for him, for his beauty, for his beautification, for his honor. And the house was filled with the fragrance. So may our lives be filled. All for Jesus. All for Jesus. All my beings, ransom powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. All for Jesus is what Mary is communicating to him. And she probably couldn't have cared less that we're talking about it 2,000 years later. But Jesus says, they're gonna. I'm making note of this. They'll talk about it. So that I honor you, who have so honored me. But of course, it was no longer simply the ointment, the smell of that perfume that filled the house. But instead, it was the ointment on the anointed one that then filled up the house with this aroma, this aroma that now fills the world. Ecclesiastes 7.1, uh, and lots of commentators draw your attention to this verse just because of the parallel of it, says 
a good name is better than a precious ointment. Okay, a good name is better than a precious ointment. It's a good proverb. We can say yay and amen to that. A good name is better than a precious ointment. But what? What if? What if the precious ointment is put upon the one who has the name above every name? What then? What then? You don't have to compare. You don't have to choose between the good name and the precious ointment. You can have the precious ointment on the name above every name. What if name and act and offering become fused so that the man who is the Lamb of God and appreciates and recognizes at that moment that he's being prepared to be the Lamb of God, the sacrifice of the Passover, receives the act of anointing as our prophet, priest, and king and is so identified, so identified with this that the act becomes his name so that he's not just Jesus, he can be referred to as Christ, Messiah, anointed one. All fused together in this one person. Take your bulletins out and turn to the front. Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Mary got the offering ready. Mary prepared the offering. She has given all that she had. She's given herself. She's made herself a sacrifice, but that's not enough. It's not enough that Mary sacrifices, he, the anointed one, must be the fragrant offering. The fragrant aroma, the fragrant ointment in and of itself is nothing. When the fragrant aroma is applied to the one with the name above every name, then you have the fragrant offering, the sacrifice to God. In love he receives, and in love he then gives himself. So what's the call to us when we read something like this, when we hear a story that Jesus says, this story is going to be told around the world. As often as this gospel is proclaimed, what she did is going to be told. Right? We can't, we can't serve Jesus a meal. We can't anoint him. We can't wipe his feet with a towel with our hair. What do we do with this? First of all, we can receive the love that he's given and seek with all of our lives, all of our wealth, all of our being to love him as we have been loved. We can seek a devotion that is deeply personal and that is deeply costly to us. We can refuse the false satisfaction that comes from other things, the false satisfaction that comes from going through the motions, the functions, the, 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 the actions 
of worship and devotion with a heart that would remain far away from the Lord. We can refuse to be satisfied with that. May the Lord give us such hearts by his spirit. So so we can seek after the kind of devotion that Mary has. But secondly, we can love others in his name. For as much as you have done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. We don't have Jesus. We, we, we don't have Jesus to anoint. We don't have Jesus to make a meal for. We don't have Jesus to honor. There's a glorious opportunity in those words that Jesus have, has said, and we can manifest that in two ways for ourselves, again, on the front of your bulletins, Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love. Walk in love. Insofar as we love one another, express that kind of care for one another, tenderly take care of the hurting, of the needy, of the sick, we do it to Christ. We do it to Christ. That's what he says. You're right. You don't have me. You've got each other. Go in love. Go in love in my name, and I'll receive it. And secondly, we can not only do it to each of us as brothers and sisters, but we can go beyond that. The, the second passage on the front of your bulletin, I didn't... I didn't 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. Let me read 14 for you as well. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. How does that aroma get around the world? Through us. Through us, he spreads the fragrance around the world. I'll continue. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, it's a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We are the distributors of the aroma. We have become in Christ anointed as well. 1 John chapter 2, we have become anointed as well in him. We are the aroma of Christ, whether you want to be or not. To some, it's sweet and it's life-giving, and to some, it is foul and it is repugnant. They find it awful when they smell that smell. That was true when Paul wrote his words, obviously. It's true when Jesus was anointed by Mary, some loved it, some hated it, and it'll be true for us as well. But the final evaluation is the Lord's. It doesn't matter if people find it repugnant, repulsive, foul. She has done a beautiful thing to me. She's done a beautiful thing. 
Jesus is a fragrant offering. May our hearts, our homes, our church, and our world be so filled with this aroma of Christ, and God willing, be it aroma of life. Lord, we thank you for this example. We thank you for this woman, for her faith, love, her devotion. And we pray that through the presence of your Spirit in our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, that our hearts would so grow in love for you and for one another as well. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.